In the 11,000 years since the end of the last big ice age here, the island we now know as Ireland has been through many transformations. From times when woolly mammoths roamed barren tundra here, to times when the woodlands covering much of the island were so thick they were almost impenetrable. Today's landscapes are imprinted with layers of this rich history. My name is Anya Murray, and I've always been deeply curious about the nature of things. And I love uncovering the stories about things that are often hidden in plain sight. Over the course of three episodes, I will be uncovering rich layers of history. The Neolithic was referred to as the Neolithic Revolution. It changed everything. Investigating stories in which wildlife, landscape and people converge. Many people to Ireland in the 1600s, certainly the early 1600s, would have been aware of wolves, would have known they were in their area and would have probably heard them if they've never even saw one. And hoping to find some insights about what the future might hold. We have to recognise that there are species slipping away from us, joining the myriad of species that have already gone extinct in Ireland. And that is happening at a pace that is frightening when you start looking at it. This series is my way of inviting you to join me on a journey of discovery, to trace back our relationship with nature through time and find the threads that could guide us to a more promising future. Ireland's Changing Nature, Episode 1, After the Ice. Our story begins about 30,000 years ago, during the last Great Ice Age that covered this part of the planet. An enormous dome of ice stretching down from northern latitudes engulfed much of the island of Ireland. It's hard to imagine what Ireland would have been like in an ice age. So I asked someone who's been to the Arctic to tell me about it. It's a very surreal and ethereal experience to be standing in this frozen landscape. Dara Muldowney is a photographer who has spent time photographing Arctic landscapes, experiencing the vast emptiness of the tundra and recording the sounds of the moving ice and meltwater. You won't last a long time out in this environment. It's particularly harsh. The temperatures drop to minus 35. You, you step outside and if you breathe deeply in, in those sort of temperatures, you're going to hurt your lungs. You know, the temperature is that cold, it's a very sharp sting. When the wind howls across, your, your eyes start to water and then bit by bit they all start to freeze and you know you're constantly like brushing away frozen ice that visually you're getting this stunningly beautiful expanse of ice and whiteness but there's, there's also a funny thing in cold places there's a deadening of sound as well whereby the ice and snow because it coats things and covers the grasses and the land and the rocks and everything with the, with the covering. It just seems to absorb the sound, which 
again adds to the meditative experience of the place. The most recent ice age lasted more than 100,000 years. During this time, enormous glaciers waxed and waned, sometimes covering the entire island, at other times retreating, so that only the northern half of the country was under ice. Glaciers and their meltwater sculpted the landscape as they moved, transforming mountains, valleys and plains. And while all this was going on, Ireland was home to some surprising animals. We had woolly mammoths before and during the last ice age. This is Ruth Carden, an archaeozoologist who studies the bones of animals who roamed this island long ago. So we had woolly mammoths about 30,000 years ago in the southwest of Ireland, and also we had them about 22,000 years ago. So woolly mammoths, like, you, you think of them as being, oh, they're really big animals, but in fact, they're the size of modern African elephants. So a male would be that size and weigh about six tons. So they weren't ginormous. These animals are able to cope with extreme cold, but they still needed to eat. Maybe they grazed in areas of Ireland that were free of ice, where small sedges, grasses and herbs grew. Their tusks were up to 15 foot long and could be used to break up ice and get to the grasses below. But what does the presence of these animals tell us about the landscape at that time? They'd need a um, tundra step, not so much forests, like you don't get a lot of forests at that stage, so it's more open plains, a lot of willow, juniper. But seeing as they were in Ireland, before the Ice Age, it was their cold adapters because they, they have these, you know, woolly coats. It's like a dog's um, coats. They have an outer guard hair and an inner shorter, uh, warmer layer of hairs. So they were really protected against the cold. And the fact that we have them still surviving when there's an Ice Age going on means that they're well adapted to living. It's just that why they disappeared during or after the Ice Age, we're not entirely sure. As far as we can tell, woolly mammoths lived here when the land was mostly snow and ice. They only disappeared from Ireland around 21,000 years ago, just after the peak of the last ice age. And then, as the climate warmed, the ice domes that had waxed and waned for thousands of years collapsed. I wanted to know about how the landscape changed after the ice. So I spoke with Michael O'Connell, a paleobotanist who has spent decades uncovering the history of Ireland's wild places. The melt came very fast. So soils had to be made, plants had to migrate here. And so this melting of the glaciers was quickly followed by the first plants. Pioneering trees and shrubs, such as birch and juniper, produce millions of tiny wind-borne seeds, so they find their way to new ground very quickly. And as the first plants began to get established here, a steady succession of animals began making themselves at home too. So the climate was, you know, kind of nice. We had reindeer, we had hare, brown bear, we had giant deer. Giant deer were enormous animals. 
giant deer males weigh a ton in body weight, 1,000 kilos, big antlers. Like they stood shoulder height at six foot. So they're big, big animals. So giant deer, they would have relied on a lot of grass. They were probably a dwindling population. And eventually there was probably some lonely giant deer stags and giant deer females wandering around the, the environment and just not being able to produce a calf and slowly but surely disappearing. The remains of giant Irish deer have often been uncovered on the edges of ancient lakes where the animals probably went down to take a drink. Perhaps they were weak from lack of grass to eat on the icy tundra, getting stuck in the lakeshore mud. Little did they expect to be preserved there for tens of thousands of years. And then suddenly there was this really big cold snap again, like a mini ice age, and that was from 11 and a half to 10 and a half thousand years ago. That's called the Younger Dryas period. But that's when we had glaciers then forming in Ireland again. Now it wasn't the same extent as the big ice sheet, but it was still quite significant that we lost giant deer. Um, we probably lost red deer. And um, we then, we, we have reindeer surviving that. And we've red fox surviving and then also hare, stoat, wolf, brown bear. And those are the animals that basically greeted humans when they arrived. There's no real consensus yet about how all the animals arrived to this island after the Ice Age. Some scientists reckon they came over on a land bridge from Britain, created by a bulge in the Earth's crust as the weight of the ice dissipated. Others suggest there was a direct land link from Spain. But in truth, we still don't really know how plants and animals arrived in Ireland after the ice sheets melted. Some scientists are putting forward the idea that there were refugia, places where there was no ice. The fact that we have them shortly after Ireland became an island would lead to possibly a refugium, a space that survived ice-free during the ice age where you had a number of animals surviving in a small enough area. This would mean that some species spread out from there after the ice melted. The cold snap probably killed off the giant deer, but once the climate began warming again, the succession of plants and animals resumed and rich ecosystems began to develop. At first, Ireland was just covered in juniper and birch. As the tundra disappeared, this birch spread right up from the south and there were extensive birch woodlands. It became the dominant species. The next species that arrived then is the hazel. And interesting, in Ireland today, we have still some of the most extensive hazel woodlands in Europe, really, and I'm thinking especially of the barn. So this is our best impression we can get of what early woodlands in Ireland were with this hazel dominating. But again, the progression continued. A tall canopy tree arrived, and the first tall canopy tree to arrive was pine. 
And so this then established dominance. And then the next two that arrived more or less simultaneously was oak and elm and established what we would call a mixed woodland. In other words, there was a mixture of pine, also roan with hazel as an understory. Honeysuckle was in the understory and ivy had arrived. Over the course of a few thousand years, Ireland had become a richly wooded land. Sprawling branches draped in mosses, ferns and lichens, layers of growth in and around the trees, filled with a plethora of creatures. Birds such as little wrens and colourful jays, woodpeckers tapping and owls on the prowl. Mammals too would have made their way here somehow. And in among all of this, brown bears. Funny enough, brown bear is probably the most common species of animal found throughout time in Ireland from the last 40,000 years. I am utterly fascinated by the idea of brown bears roaming across Ireland, catching salmon and trout in Irish rivers. Not all that long ago. So brown bears, we looked at their, their diet through looking at ancient signatures uh, called stable isotopes. The analysis of stable isotopes in archaeological remains, such as bones, is used to understand the flow of energy through a food web. Isotope analysis is how we know what animals and humans ate in the past. So we can see that they have a mixture of a diet, like fish that runs run of the salmon up, up and down uh, the streams and rivers in Ireland twice a year would have been very important for them. Examining the bones of animals who lived long ago reveals all kinds of information. I started up a personal research project in the Natural History Museum in Dublin back in 2009. So I, I basically go back and look at all the um, bones that were excavated from Irish cave systems for, that were excavated in the mid 1800s to mid 1900s. So these bones have just been lying around in boxes, not fully labeled. Some of them have never been identified. And in a box called <laughs> Clare Caves Junk <laughs> was the label. And each of the bones are marked with a, their unique cave code so you can backtrack and trace which cave then they came from. By rummaging through old boxes of bones in the Natural History Museum, Ruth's discovery has shone new light on early humans here. It was in this box that I found this kneecap bone. from an, It's from a very large adult male, brown bear, and it had these scores, score marks or cut marks um, across the front and the back of the kneecap which was like, ooh, this is interesting. <laughs> um, so we, we got a date, radiocarbon dated, and um, it was uh, identified as being butchered. It was dated 10,800 years ago. A bare bone that was butchered by humans. This is evidence that humans had been here long before we previously thought, and that they coexisted here with brown bears. 
yeah, it was excavated in 1908. God only knows who else would have come or, come across it in the future, but or else they would have just sat in the shelves again forever, ever more, and we'd be no wiser. It's quite something that, you know, that's something that the museum has held on to as part of their collections for so long can still yield such important information. I am always amazed by the unplanned nature of scientific discovery, where perseverance and happenstance combine to reveal incredible new knowing. How fortuitous discoveries so often play a part in how knowledge unfolds. Each new discovery seems to turn what we thought we knew on its head, and we're constantly discovering new information too. And so it is that we learn from a few prehistoric bare bones about how our ancient ancestors lived with wild nature. Certainly humans would have seen them as a threat and certainly bears would have seen humans as a threat. Because they're such a big animal, like they're 600 kilos, you know, that's, that's a lot of bear. Now, when they're standing on four paws, rather than standing on their hind legs, when they're standing on four paws, their shoulder height is about five foot. But when it, then the bear stands on the hind legs, you're up to, you know, seven foot plus, you know? So it's quite an intimidating animal. In that sense, because it's such a powerful animal, you'd wonder if there's some kind of totem. Now, you see that in modern day with Native Americans in the USA. So bears are powerful, powerful creatures. We now know that the earliest people who settled in Ireland after the Ice Age were living alongside brown bears, fearing them, hunting them, and perhaps even venerating them in some way. As scientists like Ruth keep searching for clues about the past, our understanding continues to unfold. What lived here? What was life like for people in a truly wild Ireland? So when humans then came into Ireland, they were faced with no red deer. And the time that they came, suddenly we had wild boar suddenly appearing. Presumably they brought their own packed lunches coming across the sea and uh, brought in wild boar with them. We know that when early settlers arrived to these shores, the landscape would have been densely wooded and the sound of birdsong must have been richer than anything we know today. They would have found rivers and lakes full of salmon, trout and eel, mammals such as stoat and hare, and of course powerful apex predators both brown bears and wolves. I'm intrigued to find out more about these early inhabitants of Ireland and their relationship with nature. Where did they come from and how did they get here? The first good archaeological evidence we have for settlement in the Mesolithic in Ireland is pretty similar in character to stuff that you find in northern Britain, around northern England and through Scotland. Similar buildings and similar types of technology. So it seems most likely that that's where people are arriving from. One thing we know for certain is that the first people to arrive, they got here by boat. This is Professor Graham Warren from the UCD School of Archaeology 
an expert in the archaeology of hunter-gatherer societies. We have a range of evidence for, for what hunter-gatherers ate. We can see that they're consuming either salmon or trout or eel. We have evidence for the consumption of boar, birds of different kinds. Um, and there's some evidence for the use of plant foods as well. Hazelnut, raspberries, water lilies. As far as we know, hunter-gatherers lived here from at least 10,000 years ago until about 6,000 years ago. We call this period the Mesolithic. To make the equipment of daily life, housing, clothing, tools and traps, they used wood, bone and stone, crafting with knowledge passed down from generation to generation over thousands of years. All of the objects that the hunter-gatherers manufactured and used came from the, the landscape around them. It, the, the stones came from beaches or possibly directly from, from exposures of rock. The wood they used for artefacts came from the woodlands. The animals that they ate were broken down into sinews for, for cordage and bones to be transformed into, into tools. So everything came from the, from the landscape around around them and they would have been very very attuned to the different properties of those materials to what was the best type of wood to use for particular purposes what were the best parts of animals to use for for particular things um the they likely transformed um resins to make to make pitch to make glue to hold parts of parts of tools together they would have constructed baskets from um, bark from plants or possibly from skins of animals. Um, they could be weaving materials as well. So uh, an enormous range of crafts, which speaks to a, a really rich knowledge of the properties of the landscape in which they lived. it's pretty obvious that hunter-gatherers would have had a rich knowledge of how best to use the materials and the animals available. But I'm surprised to learn that Mesolithic people here were going a bit further than this. It seems they had an intimate understanding of the natural environment and their relationship with the land was infused with wisdom and long-term vision. Actively managing habitats around them to be more productive, coaxing nature along to meet their material needs. The best evidence we have for Mesolithic communities manipulating the environment in terms of the food they ate is some hints in the ways in which wild boar populations were being killed, that they appear to have been hunted in a way that might be sustainable over the long term rather than just kind of running in and killing all of the boar. So there's a, there's a hint there that people may have been managing those populations. actively managing valuable resources such as hazel woods too. In an Irish context we have some some nice examples of how hunting and gathering behavior was influencing the environment and the landscape on a on a small scale. Perhaps the most obvious example comes from the late Mesolithic fish traps found in Dublin at, at North Walkey. These are fish traps constructed from stakes of wood which were placed into the intertidal muds and used to used to catch fish and we see other fish traps which are woven baskets and really careful analysis of these stakes 
by, um, by Lorna O'Donnell has shown that those stakes appear to have been harvested at a, at a consistent age. I think it was about seven or eight years old. And that type of pattern of consistent growth and consistent age of stakes is consistent with coppicing. It's consistent with the deliberate management of woodlands in order to actively promote the growth of those types of stakes. And if, you, if you're trying to construct lots of fish traps, then managing the woodland in that way makes your life an awful lot easier. The amazing thing here is that we tend to imagine that hunter-gatherers were living from hand to mouth, scraping by with whatever foods and materials they happened to come across. But it seems more likely that hunter-gatherers were actively shaping their environment, working with nature to make the landscape more productive, more bountiful. And throughout that time, Hunter-gatherers must have known so much about the patterns of plants and animals all around them. Each of us today carries an enormous quantity of knowledge about bus routes, service providers and where to get the best deals on weekly grocery shopping. The value of things. Our ancient ancestors, depending directly on the bounty of nature, would also each have carried an enormous quantity of knowledge, except that they understood which plants had starchy roots which rushes to harvest for what? How eels migrate upstream on dark spring nights? Or how the first full moon after the autumn equinox marked the influx of wintering woodcock from afar? We can be very confident that Mesolithic communities had an intimate understanding of the animals and plants on which they on which they relied. If we take again a, a boar for an example, you, you're not just hunting that animal; you are systematically taking it apart and butchering it, transforming it into food, transforming it into tools, possibly transforming it into clothing, transforming it into the materials that cover your shelter. You know how that animal operates. You know how it is put together overall, and that leads to that kind of really intimate understanding. That, that intimate understanding is shown really nicely in an example from Scotland, where in a, in a, in a shell midden, so a big pile of food waste that's accumulated, this was an area where bodies were laid out to, to decompose, and in one place within there, a human hand was laid on top of a seal flipper. Seals are mammals, just like us. So laying the hand of a deceased loved one on top of the equivalent part of a seal, well, it's a deeply meaningful act and shows a detailed knowledge of anatomy too. There is no doubt that people living in the Mesolithic age would have had a profound connection with land, water, plants, fish and mammals with whom they shared their world. And as we get better at reading the past, the picture that is emerging is far from ignorant savages. I've been trying to imagine what these hunter-gatherer forebears might have looked like, and it seems likely that they would have gone about in some rather striking outfits. We have no direct evidence for, for clothing, but in um, many hunting and gathering groups who rely heavily on fish, also use fish skin for clothes. And salmon skin clothing is quite widely recognised ethnographically um, around northern latitudes. The interesting thing about salmon skin clothing is it's, it's light, it's waterproof, it's, 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 quite, it's quite good in that sense, is some of it at least is silver. 
And we tend to think of Mesolithic communities in very, very brown terms. They're, they're brown, they're animal skin clad against a brown woodland and it's muddy. Um, I love the idea that possibly some of them may have been wearing silver clothes. It is impossible to know what their beliefs and customs were, but we do have some clues as to how Mesolithic people here viewed the unseen spiritual realms of their world. Many hunter-gatherers are animistic, that they think that everything in the world has the same kind of spirit or the same kind of soul and, and may just be wearing a different skin for a while to take on a different form. So one really interesting um, aspect of this is the evidence for consumption of bird bones on Mesolithic sites. So we have evidence of consumption of duck, and that makes sense. Duck is duck's quite nice to eat. But we also have a consistent presence of birds of prey amongst Mesolithic um, bird remains. Things like um, peregrine falcons, owls, and um, large eagles as well. And what's interesting here is that although those animals, they are edible, you can eat them, most accounts suggest that they taste pretty rubbish. And you have to wonder why Mesolithic communities would be choosing to eat these large birds of prey. It's just possible, again, we tend to think of, of eating food in terms of calories, in terms of energy, in terms of nutrition. But for many groups of people around the world, eating food is a sharing of substance with an animal. It's taking on the, the properties of an animal or a plant. And it may be that in that Mesolithic Irish consumption of birds of prey, what people were trying to do was take on the properties of the birds of prey, the, the eyesight of an owl, the speed of movement of a peregrine falcon. And you can see as we, as we talk about these things, it becomes a little more speculative, but there are pieces of evidence there that don't seem to quite make sense as, a, as just a, a nutritional choice. Hunter-gatherers had been here for thousands of years. With such an intimate knowledge of the natural world that sustained them, it's hardly surprising that their culture lasted for such a very long time. But their traditions, their beliefs, their ways of working with nature to enhance the productivity of the landscape, all that was about to change. The Neolithic was referred to as the Neolithic Revolution. It was comparable to our technological revolution that we're having uh, experiences at the moment. It changed everything. The Neolithic age was when farming arrived in Ireland, brought in by immigrants who had a whole new approach to managing the bounty of the world around them. This was a fundamental departure from the hunter-gatherers who had come before. The Neolithic people introduced a whole new element into Ireland. Cattle, sheep, goats, probably pigs. Before that, there were only the wild boar. And also cultivated plants, namely cereals. Most importantly, barley, but also wheat. 
the mm. Neolithic people, they were pretty different because they were farmers and farmers need open space, especially for the cereals. So they had to clear woodland, which the Mesolithic people didn't have to do. They had cattle and cattle effectively they can graze out in open grassland, but probably in the Neolithic, they were very often grazing within woodlands, but they were creating, opening up woodlands because they were stopping regeneration. And so we were getting an open landscape for the first time. The arrival of the Neolithic is the arrival of a new people and a whole new approach to land and nature. One of the things that I would be needing was for my cattle, those big goats that I've got with it, I'd want space for those. I'd want to make sure that they had something to eat. They couldn't nibble a browse, as we would say, in the woodland. But it would be nice to have a little bit of opening with more grasses, more herbs for them. And then for my barley and wheat were the main crops brought. And I would need space without trees to sow these in. And think of the difficulty this forested landscape must have, pre have presented. You had to cut down the trees and what had you? You had only stone tools to do it. Modern experiments have shown that polished stone axes, a Neolithic invention, were very effective at cutting down large trees. These tools represented a power to alter the landscape like never before. And while woodland clearances were opening up the landscape in many places, Ireland was still a largely wooded country. Cattle were quite happy grazing among the trees. Farming, you require open ground to grow cereals and cereal grown was an integral part of farming. But of course, cattle were the most important thing. And you didn't actually need the type of pasture that you have today for cattle. Cattle can get on quite well in woodland and especially in open woodland. So these Neolithic or New Stone Age people, they really left their mark on the landscape. Not just because they started opening up woodlands, planting crops and rearing farm animals but because they built thousands of huge stone monuments. Farming brought this whole, what's referred to as a Neolithic culture. And one of the things for us in Ireland that's really important is, of course, megalithic tombs. There are various cultures within the Neolithic culture and they built different tomb types. And uh, so we see still today, these tombs have survived fortunately for us in the landscape and we can relook at them and we can be sure, yes, our Neolithic ancestors were there, they farmed. More than a thousand megalithic monuments were built across Ireland during the Neolithic. Wedge tombs, chambered cairns, passage tombs, court cairns and dolmens. It's amazing to think how so many of the stone monuments that still adorn the Irish landscape today are remnants of a culture that lived here 6,000 years ago. Markers left by the very first farming people in Ireland. It's thought that many of these structures were territorial markers a way of staking claim to the land, 
interring the bones of important ancestors being part of the link between people and land. But this can only be part of the picture. It's during the Neolithic that chambered cairns were built right across the north and the east of the country in places of ritual significance, created with extreme astronomical precision. These ancient sacred centres were surely manifestations of the connections between people, earth, sun and the spirit world. In the next episode of Ireland's Changing Nature, we explore the massive transformation to landscape and society that came about when people here first began to extract metals from the earth and find out about the surprising connections between Bronze Age bog bodies. We believe that the bodies have been found are in fact the bodies of kings who have been sacrificed because they have been perceived of as having failed to perform their kingly roles adequately. And how people revered the earth goddess. Eru is the sovereignty goddess and fertility goddess of the island of Ireland after whom the island is named. Join me next Sunday to explore these startling beliefs and customs in episode two of Ireland's Changing Nature. After the ice, the first episode in that series, Ireland's Changing Nature, was produced, written and narrated by Anya Murray. The research was by Lenny Antonelli. Original music score was by Kevin Murphy. Sound design and mixing were by Julian Clancy.